Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. My guest today is Elena Aguilar, the founder and president of Bright Morning Consulting. She has trained thousands of educators across the United States and abroad in transformational coaching, and she is the author of six highly acclaimed books, including The Art of Coaching, Onward, Cultivating Emotional Resilience in Educators, and Coaching for Equity. She has 25 years of experience as a classroom teacher, instructional coach, and leadership coach, working in diverse school environments. And I picked up her book called Onward, Cultivating Emotional Resilience in Educators, and was absolutely hooked. I could not be more thrilled to have her on the show today. I want to welcome you today. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'd love for you to start out this conversation just telling us a little bit about your journey in education and what led to your interest in resilience. So I started teaching in 1994 and I taught and coached in the Oakland Public Schools for 19 years. And during that time, I saw a just incredible number of beautiful, gifted, brilliant, passionate, committed teachers burn out and leave the school district. And I, during those 19 years, have to confess <laughs> that I actually quit twice and then ended up coming right back again. Oh, wow. But there were two times, yeah, two times when I was like, that's it, I'm done. Here's my letter <laughs> of resignation. And then sort of, you know, either three weeks or three months later, kind of came back like, yeah, changed my mind. I don't want to leave yet. <laughs> um, but I really felt waves of burnout and exhaustion and and it really fought with my commitment and passion and love for teaching. So mm -hmm. that was, that's how I, I feel like my journey to writing about and teaching about resilience is so much my own journey. I wish I'd had Onward when I started teaching. I wish I'd had it in my first year and my fourth year, <laughs> my 10th year. Like, I wish I'd had someone supporting me. I think I could have, I think I would have stayed longer in the classroom and I think I would have enjoyed my teaching more. Yeah, no, I think there are so many teachers who are likely going to listen to this and think that is how I feel right now. Like I am ready to run away from this profession because it is so overwhelming and I feel so exhausted and burnt out. I mean, it's already a complex and multifaceted and demanding career, but then you have kind of the events of the last 12 months making it even more intense for teachers. Um, so I'm curious, was there like a moment that inspired you to write Onward? Because that was published, what, in 2018? Mm -hmm. What was it for you that was like the catalyst where you're like, okay, I do have to write this book that I wish I had in year two and 10 and 15? You know, I had been thinking about it for years. So my first book was The Art of Coaching. And then I was so tempted to write Onward and but I had thought my second book is The Art of Coaching Teams, and that one had been originally part of The Art of Coaching. It was a chapter in it. And so I had to kind of do that. And there was a point at which I asked my publisher, could I just write both of them at the same time? Because <laughs> it felt like I just had to get into the conversation about emotions and resilience. Because 
I would say onward in some ways is really about how do we understand and engage with the emotions that we experience Mm -hmm. as educators, as humans. And that question came up for me from the very beginning of my teaching career. And it came up immediately when I started coaching teachers in the sense that I would sit down to guide them through some new curriculum or something. And they would just start crying and Mm -hmm. saying, this is so hard. I don't know how I can keep doing this. And, And that's so common. I did the same thing as a new teacher, as a novice teacher, as a mid career teacher. Like I did that same thing many times. And so I, you know, I just felt like we need to be talking about how do we understand and engage with the emotions that come up. And I didn't, I couldn't find that anywhere. It was like, if you want to talk about emotions, well, go to a therapist or maybe, you know, read a self-help book or something. But emotions don't have any place in professional worlds or education. And and that's really, in some ways, what Onward is about. It's about how do we understand this whole soup of emotions that we are constantly experiencing. And I wrote this, obviously, before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we engage with them, relate to them, understand them, kind of navigate them, surf them? Um, so, yeah, it's something that I've been thinking about and wanting to understand for 17 years. I started <laughs> coaching 17 years ago, and I always rem- I, I know that number in some ways so quickly because it was when my son was born. I started coaching when he oh. was born. Um, and so... You know, from the very beginning of the time I started coaching new teachers, they cried all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what to do. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And if you don't, I remember I cried in my share of bathrooms, uh, more in my student teaching uh, than in my first year, but definitely having those breakdowns of like, I feel like I'm failing. I'm so overwhelmed. And there wasn't really a space to talk about feelings. And you make a comment, I can't remember which chapter it is, but it's all about talking about love and how maybe that needs to be part of conversations in schools and not to shy away mm-hmm. from some of these emotions and and start talking honestly about them. So I, it's mm-hmm. funny because there's you talk a lot about community and relationships and how important those pieces are to resilience. And, and yet a lot of these other emotional pieces we don't really deal with in schools and in education, which I think is so fascinating because we're such emotional beings, you know? Mm -hmm. And we all, I mean, this is like, we are human beings, we have emotions. And yes, we also experience emotions at work. And particularly for teachers who work with young people, meaning you are in (laughs) the presence of, you know, 20 or 30 or 35, 40 people or 200 people who have a lot of emotions. Young people are still in that exploration learning. And I want to, so I really appreciate that you named the reference to love because sometimes when we think about emotions, we think about the language that's sometimes used is the negative emotions Mm -hmm. or we talk, people talk about controlling emotions or managing emotions or even the phrase emotional intelligence, I'm not crazy about. And I often talk about that what we need to do is learn how to understand and engage with our emotions. And I really want to shift the paradigm on 
how we think about what they are and how actually they could be a source of energy and insight and inspiration and wisdom. And that example of talking about love is exactly, is part of what I mean in the sense that we always think about, oh, how do I control my anger or how do I deal Mm -hmm. with my frustration? And really what I'm saying is, well, first, I think we need to learn from our anger and engage with it. And I also think we need to talk about emotions like love and joy and connection and transcendence and all those other emotions that are perhaps the more pleasant ones or the ones we like to have and talk about that experience and and really cultivate those. And so in Onward, many of the chapters are indirectly about how do we get in touch with those emotions in ourselves. So there's a chapter on play and create. That's that's for the month of March, right? Yes, it is. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So that, I mean, essentially that one's like, can we get in touch with this emotional energy that is it about, that's about creativity and expansion and pleasure and fun and playfulness. Um, the chapter on community is is really about the emotions of connectedness and feeling bonded and in community with others. And so some of the frames for the chapters are, I would say, in some ways, indirect ways or um, maybe masked ways to talk about certain emotions nice. that, you know, if I'd written a book that was like, get to know your emotions, and chapter one <laughs> was sadness, right. and chapter two was anger. I don't think there'd be that much interest in that. No. Yeah, I would agree with you. But I really love how you structure it because there's something so unique about the teaching experience and profession because of the way the calendar, like the school year calendar kind of dictates where we are and how we're feeling. Like I think about the ebbs and flows in a school year and the energy and the excitement and the optimism we start with. And then those moments in the school year where it starts to like, oh, we're tired. Mm -hmm. We kind of need a holiday or a break. And the way you've organized the book by month, kind of covering a different habit and disposition for each month, I thought was really, it was such an interesting way to think about presenting these ideas and these habits in a particular order that really spoke to where teachers might be. So I'm curious, like, why did you decide to organize it in that way? And I know that you do tell the the reader kind of, well, if you're coming mid-year, approach it this way. But I'd love for you to talk to teachers. You know, if they decided to pick up this book mid-year, how would you kind of suggest they move through it? I recently realized that with the exception of one year after college, every other year of my life, basically, since I was maybe three, has existed on the school year calendar, Mm -hmm. the North American school year calendar. And I was like, I have such a rhythm in my everything, including like even like my shopping habits. Like (laughs) when do you buy new clothes? When do you buy new markers? And, you know, it's like August um, (laughs) doesn't ever, you know, but so I feel like I've existed on this on this calendar that is completely the school year calendar. I know it so well. So when I wrote Onward, I thought about, first I thought about how, what I'm presenting in Onward, the skills, the habits, the dispositions, 
all are things that really take some time to practice and integrate. Like you Mm -hmm. can't just read the book and become more resilient. It's really a guide along with the workbook to helping you build these skills in yourself. And that takes time. So I, most of the work I do really is in the field of adult learning and how do we help um, big people learn and grow. And, <laughs> and and so I applied that thinking to this content. Like I want people to read the book and maybe get some new ideas or get inspired, but ultimately I want them to build resilience and that takes time. So initially I thought about saying, hey, you know, read this book over the course of a year, read one chapter a month and do the exercises in the workbook. And and that's how you'll become more resilient. And then as I started outlining the chapters, I realized, oh, I need to guide people through the school year. And ideally, (laughs) people would like, everybody will get it in June and start reading in June. And of course, that doesn't happen. But, um, But, you know, thinking about what do we need in November, October, November, when in a lot of ways, we know this from research, teacher energy is at its low. Mm-hmm. And and then I just kept thinking so much to like the week after winter break, when I would come <laughs> back and just this, the sort of soup of emotions at that time of year, the energy that I had, how I felt in April, March, April, May, when things were uncertain, when lots of changes were being announced. And, you know, so I I just feel like I have that sense of that rhythm so deeply within me that I wanted to guide people through building their resilience along that timeline. And I think if people are picking it up mid-year, Um, what I often say to people is go with, you know, let yourself go with whatever feels most compelling. Like if you look at the table of contents or you flip through it and you feel like, that's what I need right now, start there, like go with where you have the energy and where you're feeling excited and called to it. And I think this year in particular, because of the pandemic is such a weird year, Mm -hmm. um, that it's even more of an invitation to go with what you need. Yeah. What speaks to you. I love that. And I, I I actually turn to Onward. So I work with teachers almost every day and I'm supporting these teachers who are so drained and they're just feeling defeated by this current moment in education. And I know that you wrote the book before the pandemic. And when I picked it up, it just really spoke to me because I have a lot of fear and worry about teacher resilience in this moment where they're facing so much change, so much uncertainty. There's so many new expectations of them. They're navigating new teaching and learning landscapes. And so I'm curious for a teacher right now, how do you see some of these habits maybe supporting them in this moment where they're probably feeling more fragile and more spread thin and maybe more in, in con, kind of insecure about their own practice, right? Because they are in these new spaces. So even if I've been teaching for 25 years, now I'm online or I'm on this hybrid schedule and I'm feeling like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I don't know if I'm serving kids to the best of my abilities. How do you see this book and those habits and the workbook and practices really helping teachers kind of survive this moment and maybe even kind of thrive in this moment? So... Anytime we are in a crisis, and I'm framing 
it this way because whether it's a pandemic or a personal crisis that someone goes through in six months or a year, or perhaps people are going through a personal crisis in addition to the pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, anytime you're going through a crisis, an emotional crisis uh, uh, where um, there has something unexpected has happened, some change that you did not anticipate or want, one of the primary things that happens for people is that they are inundated with emotions often at the same time. And that leads to this sense of what we call overwhelm or stress. Um, Or sometimes people describe the experience as just exhausting. They're not talking about physically, they're talking about emotionally. And what that means is there's so much, there's so many emotions happening that it's impo- that it's too hard to process. Mm-hmm. So anytime I hear someone say, for me, overwhelmed and stressed are often signs that someone is going through a crisis. And it could be, you know, it also could be um, it doesn't have to be a huge crisis, right? It could right. be that you got a new student in your class and they are really having a hard time adapting to the community and you're just overwhelmed by how to support this student, right? So mm-hmm. anytime I hear someone use that phrase, um, it is a cue to me that the most useful strategies will be the ones in the chapter about understanding emotions. It's Mm -hmm. a cue that what they really need is an opportunity to first slow down enough to be able to identify the emotions. And when we do that, it can be such a relief. Even if all we're doing is saying, okay, so actually what's going on with me, and this is a process, it's usually not just as I'm saying it, but what's going on with me is I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling physically depleted. I am despairing. I am afraid. I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. I'm confused. I feel insecure. I feel ungrounded and unsettled. I am uncertain about what I want to do, raising a lot of doubt. As soon as we start just naming the emotions, it's actually a relief. It feels so much better to be able to say all of that than to Mm -hmm. say, I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. Because that's like this this sort of monster that you can't identify. You can't see it. You don't know what to do. So right now, I would tell people the chapter on understanding emotions might be the most helpful and spending some time with the document that's in there called The Core Emotions, which is also available on my website. It can be downloadable for free. Um, The Core Emotions is absolutely essential, I think, at any time but now to help us identify what we're feeling. And I know it, it sounds like, well, what does that do? But just identifying it, like, relieves this sense of weightiness and... Um, an inability to figure out like, okay, so what do I do? So I can say, okay, so this is what I'm feeling. And then we can figure out, okay, so then now what? But actually just being able to identify the emotions brings such relief. Yeah, it's it that that naming process of, okay, this is what it is. It almost 
leads to the first step in understanding or figuring out, or right, what do I do about the fact that I'm angry or the fact that I feel depleted? And another chapter, and I'm curious about your take on this, another chapter that really got me thinking particularly about kind of my interactions with teachers recently was the t- the chapter that's titled Tell Empowering Stories and how you talk about just the power of the stories we tell ourselves. And as you are giving all of these examples of these negative stories that are really common for teachers to tell themselves, whether it's a principal passing you and not saying hello, and then we're reading into that, like, what does that mean? Is this person upset with me? Have I done something wrong? Am I going to get in trouble? Versus the power of a more positive story associated, like, oh, that person must be really busy. He or she has a lot on their plate, right? And I think in in this moment with COVID and all the changes happening in education, it's really it's really tempting to kind of tell ourselves negative stories, especially as teachers. We're not always the ones making decisions, right? These leaders in schools are trying to figure out how do they meet the demands of the pandemic. And so they're passing particular kinds of schedules to try to make stakeholders, parents, students happy. And teachers often feel like they're not really consulted. They feel kind of powerless. And then they slip into that kind of negative storytelling around what's happening. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that idea of telling empowering stories and and how we go about shifting our thinking in that way. Sure. That is a really key strategy or habit to build in ourselves. So the first thing to understand is that in order to be able to look at the story you're telling and perhaps shift it, you actually do have to do the processing of emotions first. Mm. Otherwise, it becomes a sort of Pollyanna, just look on the bright side, just, you know, change your attitude, just think differently. <laughs> and, 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 so, and that doesn't work. That actually makes us feel much worse. And so just a sort of cautionary, before you tell the empowering stories, before you look at your stories, you want to be really clear on what your emotions are. Part of the work around the emotions is accepting them and accepting, and that's hard. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is, um, what I'm suggesting isn't just sort of like a, a worksheet to fill out and be like, okay, I did that. It's actually hard to say I am frustrated and despairing and hopeless and insecure, you know, And um, mm-hmm. but it's part of the process. So telling empowering stories is the, the sort of the precursor is to be able to say, so what is the story I'm telling? And then the question is, what does that story do for me? Is it, how is it serving me? So, for example, right now, I'm hearing a lot of teachers talking about feeling like they just don't feel like they've had an impact as a teacher this year, that they haven't been able to be the teacher they want to be, that they are really doubting whether kids learn, that they're questioning whether they want to stay in education. And what I hear in there, first of all, is, you know, a lot of fear and grief and and doubt and insecurity. And then sometimes the story that I hear or the story that a teacher will articulate is something along the lines of this school year has been horrible. Mm-hmm. It's been a disaster. Mm-hmm. It's been the worst year ever. And 
So when I'm coaching teachers, then I'll say, so if that's the story you tell, what does that mean? Like what's possible? What is this? How does this serve you? And sometimes they'll say, well, it means that nothing could ever be this bad again. And so I'm like, okay, well, if you want to keep that story, I can see the reasoning why. Um, I mean, I'm, in other words, I'm not judging or evaluating the story they're telling. I just want them, I want teachers to be clear on this is the story I'm telling. This is the impact it has on me. And I want to tell this. But sometimes I'll also say, well, what about, you know, is there any other way to look at what's happened this year? So one of the things about resilience that's key to understand is that resilience is what allows us to thrive and not just survive. So mm-hmm. there's a difference between surviving the year and thriving. And one of the ways that we can thrive in a really difficult time is if we can find some learning or some lesson in the experience. If we can say, this is the hardest year I've ever had as a teacher, and I'm learning so much about Mm -hmm. myself and what I need in order to feel like a good teacher. I'm learning so much about my students and what they need. I'm I've actually found some surprises in what I've learned about how students engage with virtual learning. I think as long as we can stay open to what there is to learn, there's a possibility of cultivating resilience. It's a key trait in a time of crisis. Um, And the other thing that sometimes I remind people of in the midst of this crisis is, you know, the story isn't over yet. We don't know, like it, it's it's still, I know that this year has felt extremely difficult and yet we actually don't know what the conclusion of the story is. Mm-hmm. And we may not know for some time. Um, I am coaching a teacher who recently told me that she teaches fifth and sixth grade and that one of her students who has never come on screen, has always had her camera off, has been sending her some Um, emails about some questions that she's having in her life around her identity markers and Mm -hmm. has been engaging with her teacher in this way. And it's telling her things like, I've never told anyone this. You're my favorite teacher I've ever had. I'm so, you know, and the teacher is like, I've never even seen her. And we're having this kind of communication conversation. Would this have happened if we were in person or would that have felt scary or threatening? Does this child need the anonymity to be able to share what she's sharing? Right. So I think, you know, that's the kind of thing where I could see this, this student reaching out to the teacher in 15, 20 years and saying, you know, you changed my life. I had no one to talk to about the things I was going through and I could tell you. And I just think that that's like, the story isn't over. And we have to sometimes exercise some restraint in coming to conclusions about the story. So even if you can't tell an empowering story, maybe just remembering, like, maybe just hold off on writing the concluding paragraph to it. I love that. That's such a great, I love the story and it's great advice. And when I, I hear teachers a lot talk about how hard it is to teach to those 
dark squares, right? And I always remind them just because you can't see their face, it doesn't mean they're not there. It doesn't mean they're not listening and engaged. There might be a whole host of reasons why they don't feel comfortable or safe allowing that window into their personal world at home, right? And to try to, again, it's about thinking about why do we we think they're turning their screens off? And is there maybe a different reason that we might want to think about and consider? And and your comment about the lessons we learn helping us build resilience really, really kind of resonates with me, trying to figure out what are the, the positives coming out of some of these hard situations. And I, and I agree with your point about not being, you know, the Pollyanna, but even my own children who... I'm not that far from you. I'm up in Santa Rosa and my kids have been online learning since March of last year. So it's been almost 12 months exactly. And often they'll say, or they've had days where they're like, gosh, I just hate online learning. Like I'm not enjoying this. And we will have conversations about, okay, what is something positive that's come out of the pandemic and you learning from home? And they will generate ideas like, well, we get to spend more time together as a family. We've played more games in the last year and connected on a really deep level. Like I'm not traveling all over the country speaking. So they get mom around all the time and they've, you know, each kind of explored some new areas of interest that, you know, quite frankly, in our normal day-to-day when they're rushing from school to soccer, home, they don't really have time to cultivate some of those interests. So I love the idea of just kind of thinking about the, the, the aspects of a hard situation where we're actually, maybe they're like the little silver linings or the things that have been positive. Yeah. I mean that, and I think what you are referencing is what I talk about in the chapter called um, focus on the bright spots Mm -hmm. and that idea of even within situations that are really hard or undesirable, if we can find some of the, especially the little bright spots, it just shifts the way we see the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk a lot about that that chapter on community and how essential community is, you know, to our feelings of like health and happiness and feeling supported and to our resilience. And I have to imagine that part of what's been so tough in this year is that the shift online and working from home and learning from home and the feelings of just social isolation that have come with living in a pandemic have to really have kind of negative impacts on teacher engagement. Like I did my own research um, on teacher engagement and blended learning environments. And it was really clear that relationships with colleagues and relationships with students were such drivers of teacher engagement. So as kind of teachers navigate these online and hybrid schedules, I worry that there, there may be feelings of loss around that community that's really impacting teachers in a negative way. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for teachers about you know, still prioritizing the connection with a community, even if that's not happening in in person, face-to-face? Like, how do they keep building that community with colleagues and or with their students in this moment when they might not be able to share a physical space? Mm-hmm. That's such a great question. That um, That is the topic that has been of greatest interest to folks who listen to my podcast. The, <laughs> there, I, one episode I did where I was coaching a teacher last August around how to build community in his classroom. And he had taught for 10 years and he was just, he was in a um, sort of 
spinning. He couldn't figure out how he could create community in his classroom when it was going to be on Zoom and he wasn't going to be able to meet them in person and sort of feeling like this is not who I am. I don't know how to be who I am and also create community. Um, but that is just that funny because that podcast is the one out of the 44 episodes I've done that has been <laughs> downloaded the most. I'm actually having him come back on the show next week to update us with how things went. Um, but it's, you know, I, and I think it requires teachers to really re-examine the strategies that they have used in the past for building community. And I, I think there's a real opportunity to push for challenging some of the traditional ways that may have worked really well for some students and may not have actually worked all that well for other students. Um, so I have a 17-year-old son who is in his junior year. He's only been distant learning this year, and he is thriving. Wow. And it's so wild. <laughs> and I keep doing the like mom interrogating thing because I'm so worried. Um, and he is so prior to the pandemic, he goes to a school where he had to commute to get there about 45 minutes each way. Mm -hmm. So he is not having to get up as early in the morning. He doesn't have to deal with our public transportation. And he is introverted. And he really loves the time in between classes or when he has a break to to just unwind, to decompress. He's been very social. He's actually had like a lot more conversations with friends than usual, but he is not having his energy sort of just drained by going in and out of so many classes every day mm -hmm. and lunchtime and getting on the you know, the public transportation. And so when he talks about all of this, he's like, I, I think I've never done better in school. And he's <laughs> doing, getting good grades and he's super engaged. And, um, and he, sometimes he doesn't have his camera on and I peek in and I'm like, oh, he should turn on his camera. But it's his way of sort of retaining his energy and processing. And I mean, I'm, I'm sort of amazed by, he does want to go back in person, mm -hmm. but he says like, ideally for him, he'd have a whole blended, he would go to school maybe two days a week, have three days of distant learning. And he just feels like he has so much more energy. And I understand when I think about what I understand about introversion and extroversion, I really understand what he's naming. So I just think it's really fascinating because I would have had, I would have thought like, oh no, they need all, I mean, I, I know this stuff, like I know the psychology behind learning. And um, so I think it's really pushing many of us, at least it's pushing me and many teachers I know to rethink the assumptions that we've made about how kids learn, what they need, you know, what, what that looks like. Absolutely. And there, I've heard stories like that repeatedly. They're not the stories getting the big headlines for sure, but I've heard of so many kids who are definitely thriving in this moment. And I do think it's highlighting the fact that a one size fits all model to an educational experience just isn't going to work for everybody. So whether it's the kid who is loving online learning and moving at their own pace and not feeling drained by all of those other factors, or whether it's somebody who would love a hybrid schedule where they get a little mix of the two. I, I mean, that's obviously my area of interest and expertise. And I, one of my hopes is that as we exit out of this situation, that maybe we keep some of our creative 
of thinking and open-mindedness around what school could look like for students and how we allow them to make choices about the best scenario for them as a learner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think there's so much. My latest book is on um, educational equity and there's, I've noticed some really interesting reports and anecdotes about how different groups of students, um, how different racial or ethnic groups of students are experiencing distance learning and how um, for some Black students, being in a virtual environment has reduced the amount of implicit bias that they have to be confronted with every day and has actually created like some real opportunity. Mm. You know, I think that there's, there's, I'm just always interested in the outlier experiences. And I think there's obviously a lot of, of detrimental impact when we think about educational equity as well of distance learning in the pandemic. Um, but I, the, I, I'm really curious to think about what we can, what we can ex- take from this and what we've learned. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that's the coaching for equity book that you're referring to, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So equity is obviously such an important topic in education. So when you work with educators, how do you support them in kind of both understanding what equity is and what it looks like in terms of design and facilitation of learning experiences? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, first of all, understanding what it means is foundational and critical. Mm-hmm. And I would say even just the term equity is used in different places with different meanings. So one of the first things I do, whether I'm working with school leaders or coaches or teachers, is um, work towards understanding that a definition of what educational equity is, at least the definition I use, because people use different different terms. Um, different definitions, and then, and then, wow! How do we create educational equity? I mean, a lot of the coaching work I do has involves looking at underlying beliefs and surfacing mental models and mm-hmm. understanding what racism is and how it is that basically we are all racist. It's just easier to understand that racism is like a toxin that is in the air and in the soil and in the water, and we have been taking it in. We've been conditioned to have ideas that white skin and people of of European descent, particularly sort of Northern European descent, are better than other people. That's the definition of white supremacy as an ideology. Mm-hmm. There is it's supremacy. One thing is better than, is superior to, is more developed, advanced. Life, those lives are worth more um, than people with darker skin, people who speak different languages. So I'm kind of going down a train of like, we have to actually understand what these terms mean. And then we kind of understand what, how they have played out in our world, in our country. So what I say, like, yeah, we're all kind of racist, you know, it's easier to some degree or another, there's a continuum. Mm -hmm. But if we understand that we've been taking in through our education, through the media, through, film and literature and everything since we were born we've been taking in these notions that this is better than that then it's 
it's it's going to take some conscious work to extricate those toxins from our cells. And, um, and then, so then we go into like, okay, so what does this look like in schools? How does, how do racial inequities manifest or how does white supremacy as an ideology manifest in the classroom? Mm-hmm. And we look at things like curriculum choices and we look at discipline policies and teacher attitudes and beliefs, which is hard and it's yeah. painful. And this is why we have to be able to talk talk about emotions right because you can't address <laughs> equity without being like okay so yep i hear there's some frustration showing up right now some guilt some shame some sadness yep those are all emotions let's understand them let's explore them and and then let's see what we can learn and do better next time mm-hmm. um yeah so it's a lot there's a lot to do there that is a lot. And it, it's such an interesting point because if you can't name those emotions and be honest about what they are, how can you have a, a, a real conversation about equity and really making, you know, substantive change in the way we go about, you know, choosing curriculum, designing learning experiences, interacting with students, thinking about discipline, kind of approaches to discipline. So I know it's a really complex kind of multifaceted topic. And I can't imagine like how challenging that is to kind of work with an entire school community where you have all of these different mental models and different feelings and different degrees of kind of, you know, racism in within a community and how you, you move that forward. So when you define equity for a group, like what is the language you use? Yeah. So (laughs) educational equity means Every child gets whatever they need in order to be successful and to thrive in school every day. Every child, every day, regardless of their race or ethnicity or religion or languages spoken at home or socioeconomic status or their gender or sexual orientation or cognitive or physical abilities, every child, every day, period. And so educational equity means removing the predictability of experience or outcome based on race, ethnicity. So it means that we would see if we have 100 students in our school and 10 of them are African-American, 10 of them are Latino, we would see that representation in an AP class or a gifted and talented class. Mm -hmm. We would see the same representation when we look at office referrals. And so is it hard for you when you think about the fact that, okay, you have a room full of, say, 32 students and you know that they all need different inputs, right, to potentially get to a particular outcome, yet the way so much of education is still is still happening is that everybody gets the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like this is something I focus on all of the time is just that there are so many different needs in a class and skill levels and language proficiencies and interests and all these other things. And yet we're still, I'm still trying to make, or I still feel like I often have to make the argument for why that whole group teacher led model isn't going to serve most of the students in a room because they all need different things. Yeah. I mean, I I think that, um, I mean, first, 
I do think that there are often, you could sort of group kids within, you know, maybe 32 kids, you could group them within like five or six groups. And so there can be some, uh, you know, it may not be like every child needs an individualized education plan. learning plan. Um, yeah, but I also think that the problem is that we are trying to work within a system that was never set up to serve every child. Right. The, the way that the education system was set up is in conflict, at least with the vision I have for what education should be. And I, and I think that we are... Um, we have missed opportunities. Perhaps we have an opportunity now to really rethink our education system and how it's structured and how it's funded and um, and and to try some new things. I actually think that the pandemic may be could in some places play a catalyst. Yeah, it's a good point. You're right. The system we have right now is not set up to meet individual learners' needs or even really, I would argue, in some cases, small groups of learner needs. But um, I hope as well that this moment does serve as a catalyst to get people kind of reimagining what teaching and learning could look like and and thinking about things like blended learning and competency-based learning and personalized learning and how do all these things fit together and what could it look like to better serve students? Because I feel like every year I'm in education, just the kind of spectrum of need just gets wider and wider. And I think teachers get increasingly daunted to try to figure out how do I meet all these needs? Because they see them in a classroom and it's hard to feel like we're not effectively meeting kids where they're at. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I write about perhaps in my other books more is about the uh, is helping people cultivate awareness of the systems that we're in mm -hmm. so that people, teachers can make a distinction between the challenges they're facing and the limitations and restrictions of the systems that they're in. It helps with some of the emotional uh, turmoil to be able to say, you know, this is not my fault. Right. This is the way it was set up and I can influence this right here and I can make an impact on that right there. But there's elements which this isn't to necessarily like let people off the hook when looking at racial injustice and inequities in education, but it's a way that we can, again, sort of um, engage with our emotions in a way that makes it feel, we, we may feel more empowered, more, more of a relief. Yeah, no, that's, I think that is a good point. Cause I think sometimes we get, at least from a teacher perspective, I remember being in my classroom and being frustrated by things. And, and I didn't always have that bigger picture of the system that was in place that did put limitations on some of the stuff I would have loved to have done, but I, I really couldn't within those constraints. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of teachers feel that way. Are there any areas like in your like experience coaching teachers where you see those real imbalances in in the teacher practice that you've you've spent time kind of focused on or helping teachers to maybe strive for more balance in those areas? Do you, do you see things that kind of repeatedly pop up for teachers? I mean, I, I guess this probably sounds really obvious, but it's connected to building resilience. But one of the things that I'm, one of the things that would make a huge difference if it is if teachers ate lunch and slept 
for <laughs> eight hours a night right. and got a little bit of exercise each day. You know, and I, I when I wrote the chapter on taking care of yourself, I felt like I was getting a little luxury, like you got to sleep and eat and rest. <laughs> and, um, you know, but like I, how many teachers I know, and I am guilty of this as well, who would go all day without eating, just like I would forget my lunch or mm. I didn't have time or... And that's why in Onward, I'm like, just get a big bag of almonds and stick them in your desk. Like have something yep. you need. Your brain needs the the, the energy. Um, and then similarly, I, I've done a lot of work with administrators. And when I'm coaching an administrator who's really at their end and they're just like, I can't do this anymore. I have often asked, how much are you sleeping? And they tell me something like, you know, four hours. And I say... I, I actually tell them like, you know what? I have agreed to coach you and now I'm going to quit because until you start sleeping, there's nothing I can do that's going to be helpful. <laughs> so you got to do um, that first. Yeah. Cause I'm like, otherwise I'm like, you know, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your money because if you don't sleep, like you're just, your body cannot do what you're asking it to do. And I'm telling you, we've got bodies, we live in them. And we've got our bodies need to produce a certain amount of endorphins. And they need a certain, you know, they need glucose for the brain. And like, yeah. if you're not willing to actually just do that, then I can't help you. So and that I would say is also true of like all the resilience building strategies. You know, you're not going to be able to focus on the bright spots or understand your emotions or do any of the other things in, that I described that help you build resilience if you are completely depleted and exhausted and starving. Yeah. No, I mean, it. it is so basic. And I'm sure there are so many people listening who are like, oh my gosh, I probably don't drink enough water during the day. I don't really have snacks for if I forget my lunch. I am not, you know, going on that walk after work because I feel like I have piles and piles of grading or whatever to get to. And sometimes it's so easy to neglect us and our physical bodies. And yet you're right. It's the, the machine that runs the whole show. And if we don't take care of it, it just starts to shut down. Mm -hmm. I know. I think about how many times I, you know, even I have had a difficult emotional like day or, and then I get a good night's sleep and I wake up in the morning. I'm like, oh, everything is better. Nothing yes. changed at all, but I'm like, everything feels so much better. And then I go, oh yes, because the night before I hadn't slept well, I hadn't slept enough. And so that is, I know it's really hard when you have so much to do and you feel like you're never, you're not even getting close to doing it anyway to say, okay, now I'm going to go to sleep a whole lot earlier. <laughs> or like you said, to go and take a walk after school. Um, mm. And we've got to figure out how to do it. Yeah. I find that I can be working at my computer and I still have a ton to do, but I hit that wall and I can sit there and spin for an hour and, you know, focus on all the stuff I have to do, or I can just get up go for like an hour walk just around my neighborhood. I come back and whatever it is about just moving your body, giving your mind a break, I sit back down and I'm so much more productive than if I had sat there for that hour trying to force myself to do something when I clearly just wasn't going to, I didn't have the mental space or I just, I couldn't do it, you know, in that moment. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I always end the show by inviting my guests to share any personal lessons. It could it could be something totally unrelated to your coaching and education, um, or it can be tied up with in that as well that you've learned that has helped you kind of strive for or create more of a healthy balance in kind of your work and life, you know, that work-life balance that we're we're all so focused on. Any any tips, mm-hmm. any things that really work well for you? One of the strategies that I use related to understanding emotions, building resilience, but is to actually really pay attention to the experiences and the emotions that bring me joy and fulfillment and pleasure and excitement and flow. So I often feel like I'm like a hound dog for (laughs) those kinds of emotions within myself. I'm like constantly on the alert, looking for, you know, trying to sniff out the moments when I feel like really um, connected to somebody or joyful or, you know, and at work. So whether it is in a workshop I'm delivering or someone I'm coaching, I really pay attention to like, oh, right now I'm feeling a moment of, um, you know, almost like I actually would almost say today, I noticed a moment. I was like, I'm feeling a moment of bliss at work. (laughs) (laughs) Like that word, I just thought bliss. Really, Lena, you're feeling bliss at work. I was like, yes, I am. I talked to myself. I'm feeling bliss. (laughs) Um, Because I think those are clues to us about what we need to have more of and what we need to do more of. So we focus a lot on what doesn't work, what we don't like, what doesn't feel good. And one of my strategies has been to really pay attention to the emotions that I enjoy, that light me up, that are the ones that I want to have more of. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful advice. I think it's so easy to just go to day, day to day and not be that that hound dog, not thinking about like how you're feeling and what it's telling you about a particular experience. Well, it was such a pleasure to talk to to you. I read your book and I was just so every, every chapter I was working through and then looking at the workbook, I was like, this is so powerful. These habits are so worth spending time cultivating and I know they don't happen overnight. So I hope any teacher who's feeling kind of depleted, who feels like they need to do some work in that area of resilience, we'll we'll check it out. And I appreciate your time joining me today. Thank you so much, Catlin, for having me. This was really enjoyable. two big takeaways from our conversation. And the first is really that cultivating resilience is a practice that takes time. It takes lots of little steps and dedication. And that's really why I appreciate the Onward workbook full of activities that can really make some of this much more tangible for educators. So we can do this slow work of cultivating our own resilience. And the second is really looking for the lessons in the hard moments. That really resonated with me that, yes, we go through these hard times, we face challenges, but if we can if we can appreciate the lessons and the learning that are part of those hard moments, then good things can come out of them.
Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an engaging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more info or follow the link in the show notes. <laughs>